This is week four, week four of our top of the charts sermon series. And over the past several weeks, we have talked about how music does so many things for us. Music can inspire us. Music can help us to understand one another better. Music can also challenge us, give us perspective. That's what we talked about last week. And today, we are talking about how music gives us passion. Have you ever heard those songs that you just, as you begin to hear it, you go, whoa, that person's got some passion. Well, I couldn't let this series go by. You know, when we were planning way back earlier in the spring for this series, I could not let this series go by without talking about Tina Turner. Back in May when she died, I was just heartbroken about losing someone who had made such an impact in music, not only as a duet, but also in her solo career. She was a woman that in her 40s came back as a solo artist, and she had this gravelly voice, and she had this oomph that not anyone else, especially in the rock and roll world, had at that time. What she did without saying it was show us that rock and roll doesn't have to be a white man. In fact, rock and roll could be a black woman. In her comeback in the 80s, she cemented her status as a solo artist with the hit, What's Love Got to Do With It? You are welcome for not singing any of this today. It was very hard to write this sermon without wanting to get my own solo out there. But she only agreed to record it if she could do it her way, forcefully, with gravity and raw motion. And it worked. Her defiant rendition, accompanied by a music video featuring her striding along the streets of New York in a denim and black leather, gave Turner her only U.S. solo number one by that point, and She won record of the year at the Grammys that year. This was in 1984. It also made her the oldest woman to land a U.S. number one single at the age of 44. And in 1989, the song, The Best, was originally written for Bonnie Tyler, who had little success with it. The following year, Tina added some extra vocal force and new soft rock production And it became one of her signature songs and one of the decade's defining anthems. The song is often mistakenly called simply the best, including by me, my bad. It's called the best, a line from its famous chorus. It's featured in numerous commercials over the years, including a Pepsi commercial that featured Tina Turner herself. Here's what some of the lyrics say. In your heart, I see the star of every night, and every day in your eyes, I get lost, I get washed away. Just as long as I'm here in your arms, I could be in no better place. You're simply the best. Better than all the rest, better than anyone I've ever met. Can you hear the passion in these very simple lyrics. You can hear Tina Turner's voice in it and that gravelly force that she brings to saying you are simply the best. If we were going
going to describe Tina Turner in one word. I think the word I would use is passion. She was a passionate singer. Now, oftentimes, I think we associate passion with wild and frantic emotion, but maybe it's a little bit more than that. I wonder today if we might define passion as a deliberate, reoccurring, ongoing commitment to something or someone we love. Deliberate, reoccurring, ongoing commitment to something or someone we love. As I heard that definition of passion, I obviously thought about Tina Turner's song, The Best, but I also thought about this chapter of Isaiah, this prophet who is describing who God is. And not only describing God as the best, but why God is the best. That God has this passion for us, this deliberate, reoccurring commitment to us that seems to go on and on, that is unfailing. So Isaiah is a prophet, as I said earlier, but if you don't know what a prophet is, that's okay. Um, I'd like for you to image a sports announcer. Yes, we are almost to football season, and thank you, Lord, for that. So I will start tuning back in to the sports announcers, but think about a sports announcer for a minute. They're not only making commentary on the play-by-play, but they're also providing some predictions, so to speak, that if something goes a certain way, Here's how the rest of the season or the rest of the game is going to play out. Well, this is what prophets did back in the time of Scripture. Prophets were sent to give some commentary and some context to the people who are walking through really difficult times. But they not only were giving that context and commentary, they were also talking about options or predictions, you could call, of what could happen if the people following God turned towards God and kept following God and remained faithful, and then what would also happen if the people turned away. Now, the book of Isaiah is sometimes mentioned as the fifth gospel. It is mentioned as that sometimes because it is so incredibly important. We've got four gospels in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Isaiah is found in the Old Testament, but it is quoted so many times in our New Testament that some people call it the fifth gospel because of its importance. Another thing to note here is that it's actually not all written by one person or one prophet. It's written over a period of time and there were additions that were added later and different voices that came after the original prophet Isaiah. And so what's happening with the group of people that this is addressed to right now, the people called the Israelites or the people of God, is they've been in exile for over a generation. Exile. Away from their community, away from their home for over a generation, which means that there is a group of people, children and great-grandchildren, who don't know what home actually was. They've just heard about it. And so Isaiah is talking to these people and giving them a renewal of strength, telling them, hey, here is where you can find your strength. Here is how you can be renewed. We find this in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, and this is in a period of time when they're exiting exile. So you would think as a group of people that if you were finally getting to go back home or things were finally turning around, that they would feel a sense of encouragement, 
Well, home isn't what it used to look like. And not all the people went back. And not all the people all at once. And so the people are confused and they're frustrated. And now there's this opportunity to go back home. And some of them are wondering if it's really worth it. Is it really worth it to change things again? So we read today from Isaiah 40, the last part, starting in verse 25. Listen now for the word of God. To whom then will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O, o Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall and will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Do you hear there that scripture? Even youths will faint and be weary. They will be exhausted and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. There's different translations of this and many that say those who wait on the Lord, those who trust upon the Lord, those who give faithfully over and over again, those maybe you could say who are passionate. If you define passion as that deliberate, reoccurring, ongoing commitment, those who over and over again turn back to God and trust in God once again, will find that God is right there. Now the first part of this in verse five starts by asking how could you possibly compare God to anyone else? Do you not know who God is? So I feel like that's a fair question today, right? Who is God? And like any person um, would naturally do, I started thinking about that question today and, and this past week, so I Googled it. I Googled it. I'll be honest, I Googled it. I said, who is God? And here's what Google told me about who God is. Google says that God is love. That's good. God is good. God is good all the time. God is able. God is here. You know, people often think and have different images of God. Of God as a wishing well or God as a bartender here to serve us and give us whatever we want or here to fulfill our wishes. God is a good old grandparent that's there to nurture us and comfort us. And my friend, who's also a pastor, had Morgan Freeman come to his church about a month ago for a wedding. So I can also say that God was in his church. So that's pretty cool. But we have so many different images of God and who is God and, and how do we understand God? But we actually have some ways of defining God. 
John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist Church and the Methodist movement, which if you saw the sign on the door when you came in, we are Christ United Methodist Church. We are Methodist. And so John Wesley had this thing, this, this method that he used as a good Methodist for how we understand scripture, how we understand God, how we understand our faith a little bit better. He called it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Quadrilateral, that actual um, geometry lesson was given a little bit later, but he said, here's the framework that you use for understanding something. You use scripture as your primary source. You look to tradition. What has the church historically said about this? You think through reasonably. What does logic tell us? God's given us reason, common sense. What is, what is that telling you? And then finally, experience. What has your own life and your own experience said about this? So today, I thought we could do the same with that question, who is God? And it's going to take about three hours, so get comfortable. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This could be a whole series, so we're going to go quick, and we're not going to get to everything. But if we look first at Scripture, who is God? Here's what Scripture says about who God is. In no particular order, and this does not mean it's all-encompassing, so you can go find other Scriptures later, and I don't want to hear about the one that I left out. All right. Scripture says that God is creator, first and foremost. God is creator of all things. In Exodus, when we read about about God appearing to Moses at the burning bush, Moses looks at Moses and says, who are you? And God says, I am what I am. Other translations of that in the Hebrew has said, I will be what I will be. And so maybe we could define that as scripture being ongoing and God being ongoing. God is not just a cosmic figure that put everything into motion and then stepped away, but God is ongoing. Scripture also tells us that God is the rescuer. We read this over and over again in Judges and in the book like Isaiah that we read just a few moments ago. God continues to rescue the people of God. God is also the judge. We will hear a lot about that in the book of Judges next week. God is the one who is the ultimate ruler, the one who is making the decisions. God is Emmanuel. We get to this when we talk about Jesus the birth of Jesus. There is a whole gospel that instead of giving us the birth of Jesus, instead starts the gospel of Gospel of John by talking about how God in Jesus is the begotten son. So we'll get to that here in just a second too because it is all very complicated and a little bit weird. But we see that God is with us. And the whole point of the first chapter of God is to, t- uh, the first chapter of John is to tell us that God is with us. That Jesus came from God. That God sent his only begotten son to come down and to be with us. For us to remember and to know more fully that God is with us. God is a protector. God is seen as the giver. God is faithful. That word incarnate means that God is the Father. Jesus is the Son. And then we read in the book of Acts, which is Acts of the Apostles, the early disciples after Jesus' resurrection, that God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we see God as this weird three-in-one, which actually takes us to tradition. 
So when we look back at the history of the church and we look back about, what, well, what has the church said about God? Well, you may not know this, but you said it earlier in, in our service. The Apostles' Creed came from a meeting of church leaders in the early church saying, we need to define who God is, who Jesus is, who the church is. So the Apostles' Creed does that. Before the Apostles' Creed was the Nicene Creed, which is a lot longer and a lot harder to say in unison, so we didn't say that one today. But it came from the Council of Nicaea. And this idea that how can God be three in one? And they chose to believe that there was heresy going around at the time. And so people were being killed and persecuted for thinking other ideas about who God was. But one thing that they could agree on more than anything was that God was a creator, Jesus was the son of God, and that the Holy Spirit had come to help us, give us teachings and life, and to give the birth of the church. And that the church, through the Holy Spirit, was the one who was supposed to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world, giving Jesus' teachings after Jesus' resurrection. So reason. If I had to say it another way, what makes sense in our world about who God is? Because science may tell us one thing, our scripture tells us another, but what makes sense to you? What I know is that if God is love, which is what scripture tells us, and I can see love in action in our world, and our scripture tells us that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, those are the two primary commandments that Jesus gives, then maybe I can see that at work in the world. Reason and experience are, are a couple here. Because you have experience which leads to your reason. We all have experiences in our lives where we have seen a lack of God in our world. And we have also seen it had experiences, prayerfully, hopefully, I hope you have, where you could see God. Where you could see God at work. Oftentimes, the way in which you define and describe God not only says something about faith and scripture and your reason and your church, but it says something about you. It says something about your experience with God. So in the same way that we talk about how God is ongoing, we also refer to our scripture as the living word of God. And we see not only God in our scriptures, but we see ourselves individually and collectively. So I thought, you know, if I Googled who is God or that God is, and let Google fill in the blank, I should do the same thing with the church. While we're defining things, let's see what Google says about who the church is. So remember, Google said that God is love, God is good, God is good all the time, God is able, God is here. Now I'll tell you, I do know that it, it's matching with my own Google searches, and so it's gonna be different for everybody's, and I don't know how to reset it, so I, I'm aware that this is bias. On my Google search, when I typed in the churches, what pulled up is the church is judgmental. The church was unkind to me. The church can be unloving. And I'm sort of stunned by this because I feel like if 
The church is the living embodiment of who God is, and God is love, and God is loving all of us, then shouldn't we have the same answers about the church that we have about God? Today, I want to give you one word for who I believe God is. I believe God is uniting. Uniting. Now, that's sort of a churchy word, and I will, I will own that. But I will admit to you that I am someone who's a bit of a picker. I like to... Um, I like to pick at things. I like to pick at my face. I like to pick at my son a lot. And um, if there is a string on something, I will pull it until it's completely unraveled. I like to pick at things. But as I begin to think about that string and continuing to pull a string, I wonder if that's how we could see God. That if God is a string that we pull, what we find is that everything is connected and what God is is God is a connector. God is the one connecting each and every one of us. Not only in this room, but connecting us to one another all over the place. God is uniting us. Back to that word, the best. My favorite part of ministry, my favorite part of being a pastor, is when I get to see people connect. When we come into this space or when I see you out in the hall and I begin to connect with you and you begin to connect with each other. Now, I know there is a lot of different places where you can connect with people. I know you can do that at the gym. I know that you can do that at school. I know that you can do that in a community garden. And I know coffee shops that do that really well too. But what is different about worship, what is different about the church, is that when one person connects to another person, and that person connects to another person, and that person continues to connect, and you pull that string, and everything begins to unravel. What you find that unites us, our common denominator, is God. And how we define God, understand God, worship God, as Mason said earlier. Because it not only says something about who God is, it says something about who we are. Isaiah today says, God is strength. I believe there is such strength in unity. Such strength when we unite together and come together and connect the way God intends for us to. And in the same way, when the church especially disconnects and intentionally does things that disconnect the people of God, we begin to misunderstand God. And God no longer in our eyes or in the eyes of those who have had this experience seems loving and the church no longer is loving either. So the example of this I have for you today is in my own story. Um, you may have caught on to this, but um, I'm a woman. And there are certain churches and certain other denominations that would walk in and say, you are not qualified. You are not eligible to be a pastor. Now they would give you a really good framework for why that is. Well, because our scripture says it. Paul says that women should submit, that women should not speak in a church. Okay, well, if you read that on paper and don't go a little deeper into what Paul was saying there, then yeah, sure. Our scripture says a lot of things. You could say, well, the church historically does not have women in the pulpit. That's also true. 
But then you get to reason and experience. And if your reason tells you that a woman could not be a leader, that probably says something about your experience. It probably says something about how you understand the world. Now watch the way in which this connects to every single person. Raise your hand today if you have ever had a female pastor, if you know a female pastor, if someone in your family is a female pastor, or you have a friend or coworker that is in leadership in the church. Everybody should be raising their hands because I'm up here. <laughs> we are all connected. What you find is when you begin to say someone is not included, someone does not belong, someone is not eligible or qualified, what you begin to do is you begin to see the people that they are connected to. You begin to see your sphere of influence and you begin to say, but you know, my aunt's a pastor and she's awesome. You know, my daughter has gifts of leadership and I think she would be a great pastor. My coworker is someone that has been more of a mentor in my life and spoken words of wisdom in my life like no other person of faith has. So maybe women can be in ministry. Do you see how the framework works? Because it brings us back to scripture and it allows us to once again dive deep and take this, the scriptures seriously. Enough to see how God is looking to move in our lives. What I love about God is that God connects us. And when we as the church choose to live into who God is and our capacity as God's creation, we become people who can connect as well. We can be people who love more fully, who forgive more fully, who unite more fully. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus said the two number one commandments are to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Two things. Maybe if we break that second part into two and a half or three and hear it this way. Love your neighbor as you learn to love yourself. Not tolerate your neighbor. Not maybe just say one thing or understand that one little thing, but really love that person. See, Jesus didn't say the most important commandment is to not kill your neighbor. Jesus said to love your neighbor. But I don't know how that is fully possible if God is not loving. I don't know how we're capable of it as God's creation if God is not loving. Today, as you listen to this song by Tina Turner, The Best, may you hear all of what God has done for you. I invite you into that time where you maybe fill in the blank for yourself. God is. Think for a minute about the scripture that comes to your mind or the experience that that revolves around. And then, maybe share it with somebody. Because what happens when we share our experience with one another, when we connect, is we live into the church that God has created and that God intends.